Well, today we're going to be wrapping up an 11-part series through the book of Joshua. So if, if you are a visitor today or you have not been with us throughout this series, uh, it, you'll still get something out of it. But for those of you who have been with us throughout the whole series, it's going to be putting that uh, exclamation point on this series through the book of Joshua. We're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 24 primarily today, the very last chapter in Joshua. And, and a lot, you know, you may have heard me a lot recently talking about this thing about making sure that Jesus is before all things. And, and that phrase actually comes from Colossians chapter 1, where in Colossians chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus is before all things, right? That's, that's who he is, you know, it's part of the character of him. And, but the reason I mention it so much is because I don't know about you, but in my life, there are, are things that try to creep up in, in front of the one who is supposed to be before all things. And what we find here in Joshua chapter 24 is that Joshua, in a little bit of a different way, is going to give the same kind of challenge and, and ask the same kind of question. And we need to pay special attention, I think, to what Joshua says here, because this is like Joshua's very last sermon. This is his, his you know, very last speech, and, and he knows it. These are his parting words, if you will, right? At the end of chapter 24, you have Joshua's funeral service. And you know, by the way, your, your very last words, those are, are some of the most important words that, that you speak. And every parent in here, or if you have parents, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's those last words when you're right, ready to drop them off before a sleepover or something, right? And you're like, all right, look at me. Look at me right now. Look at me. All right. Be on your best behavior. Make sure you brush your teeth and do not embarrass our family, okay? Like, the, like you, you lay the law down, right? This is essentially what Joshua is doing here in Joshua chapter 24. He is gathering the people of Israel together, and these are his very last words to the children of Israel. And if you pick it up in Joshua 24, uh, we're going to look at verse 14 beginning here in a second. This is the end of his sermon or, or his speech. And he, he starts with these two words that we'll put on the screen here in a minute. It says, now therefore. And I've said this before, but anytime the Bible has the word therefore in it, you got to know what the therefore is there for, right? So what the therefore is there for is, is that through all, throughout chapter 23, and all the first part of chapter 24 up to verse 13, essentially what Joshua is doing is Joshua is going through and he is recounting the, the faithfulness of God in the history of the nation of Israel. And he takes them all the way back to Abram. And he's like, there was this, this guy named Abram, which means father. And God called him to, to leave his home in, in Ur of the Chaldees and, and to go to a land that he would show him and, and a land that he promised to him. And he gave them, him this promise that he would have a son. But he was about 80 years old when he got that promise. And he said, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which doesn't just mean father, but it means father of many nations. And you're going to have so many descendants, you're going to have so many kids, that they're going to outnumber the stars in the sky, they're going to outnumber the, the sand on the seashore. That was the promise that God gave to Abraham. And the Bible says, by faith, Abraham left his homeland and went to the promised land, and Abraham put his faith into God, and God counted that faith as righteousness. The Bible says Abraham actually became a friend of God. Do you know that? We can be friends of God. Abraham was a friend of God. And Abraham gets this gift this, this promised son named Isaac. And, uh, and by faith, Abraham, he ends up taking Isaac up on a mountain, and he is willing to give back to God the promise that God had given to him. And then God steps in, and he says, no, 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 no. He says, don't, don't sacrifice your son. In about 2,000 years, we'll use mine. We'll use mine. And then he provides a, this ram to be sacrificed instead of his son, and then that son Isaac, he has two sons later named Jacob and Esau. And, and Jacob means deceiver or deceitful one. And then one night Jacob has this wrestling match with God. And, and God changes his name from Jacob to Israel, which means wrestles with God, by the way. And then Israel has a whole bunch of kids. They just can't stop. You know, they have like 12 kids. And one of the youngest ones named Joseph, he is favored by his father more than the others, which makes his brothers jealous and envious, and they don't like him very much, right? And he walks around with his coat of many colors, and, and he has these dreams about his brothers bowing down before him. And essentially, one day, the, the brothers, they, they beat him up, and they sell him into slavery, right? And he ends up being a slave boy in Egypt. 
And then one day God elevates this slave boy and he becomes like the, the senior vice president of all of Egypt, right? He's like second in command over everything in the entire country. And then this famine hits the entire world. And all of, of Israel's family, they end up in Egypt. And God was, was using this to preserve the nation of Israel. And they were there for, for several hundred years. And, and they ended up being a slave nation in the land of Egypt. And then one day, God picks, of all people in the entire world, he picks this guy that's a murderer that's on the run for his life. And he's wandering in the desert. And he bumps into God there in the form of, of this burning bush. Bush is on fire, but it's not being burned up. And God's speaking to him there. He says, Moses, I want you to go to the, to the Pharaoh, the, the most powerful man in the entire world, and I want you to tell him that you have a message from me. And the message is, it's time to let my people go. And Moses said, who should I say sent me? And he, he says, you tell him Yahweh. I am that I am has sent you. And sure enough, Moses, he goes eyeball to eyeball with the most powerful man in the entire world up to that point in history. And he says, God, it's time to let, God says it's time to let his people go. And at first, Pharaoh was like, there's no way. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So if you've read your Bible, you know the story, and God sends these ten plagues, plague after plague after plague. And each one of those plagues, I believe, when you look at them, each one of those plagues was designed kind of to, to squish the, the, uh, the, the little G-gods that they had there in Egypt, right? They had all these different gods, and each plague was designed to, to prove that uh, the one god is, is more powerful than what they thought their gods were. And then finally, you get to the tenth plague, and, and God tells Moses, you tell our people to go get a perfect, spotless lamb, and you shed its blood, and you put that blood on the, the doorpost of the home. And the angel of death is, is going to pass over, and it's going to take the firstborn of, of everybody, animal and human, the firstborn of everybody, except for those that have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost of their home. On those homes, he's going to pass over. And so it comes to pass, and the Bible says there's weeping and wailing all throughout Egypt, and the Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, all right, get your people out of here. Go, leave. And so Moses with you know, a lot of theologians and scholars believe when you count women and children, it was around 2 million people. They head towards the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh changes his mind, and he sends his army after the people to, to crush them and destroy them and wipe them out. And then God says to them, take heart, do not be afraid, for the Lord your God will fight for you. And then Moses lifts up his hands, and, and the Red Sea parts, and the children of Israel, they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. So Joshua, he's telling them this, like he's, he's reciting to them the history, and he, he's saying, hey, these are our people. This is our history, right? This is, this is what has happened. You see, God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. He goes on and says, then God took Moses up on Mount Sinai, and, and he gives him the Ten Commandments there, and he says, Moses, you guys are going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And he gives us these Ten Commandments, by the way. I think there's a, a couple of reasons primarily I think they're both to be a map and a mirror. A map to show us how we should navigate life, but they're also a mirror to show us that we can't do this on our own. And since we can't do it on our own, God set up this thing called the substitutionary self-atoning sacrificial system. I know it's a mouthful. But he, he puts this tabernacle right in the middle of town, okay? He puts this thing in, and the, the presence of God is there. One time a year, the high priest is going to go into the, the most holy place. And that high priest is going to go in. He's going to shed the blood of a spotless lamb. And he's going to sprinkle it in there. And symbolically, that blood was symbolically covering the broken laws and the, the sins of the children of Israel for one year. That's why they did it every single year. And Joshua says that generation, because they were grumbling and complaining, God let that generation die off. And then he says, one day God came to me. God came to me and he says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be afraid for the Lord your God is with you and you're going to take the people of God. You're going to go into the promised land, the land that I have promised to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so sure enough, all all the, the, the pastors, the Levites, they, they picked up the Ark of the Covenant and they start heading for the Red Sea, or the, not the, the Jordan, excuse me. And, and as they get to the Jordan, man, they just, they just step right in and they, they, as soon as their foot hit the water, the, the Jordan River parts once more for the children of Israel and they walk through on dry land into the promised land. And they begin to live in houses they did not build and they begin to drink water from wells they did not dig and they, they begin to eat from refrigerators they did not stock. And so what Joshua is saying here, 
when we're going to pick it up in verse 14, is therefore. All of that, and because of all of that, therefore. Okay, that's the context of that therefore. Since God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. Since we can look back over our shoulder, and we can see that the, the faithfulness of God over and over and over again. The, 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 the ways he says it is in chapter 23, verse uh, 8 to 11. He says this. He says, be very careful. Uh, that's the third part. There we go. He says, for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you pushed a flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So this is chapter 23, and this is, Joshua was saying, this is what the therefore is there for, okay? Now, therefore, since God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises, 24 verse 14, now, therefore, because of all that, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Now that phrase all throughout scripture that says fear the Lord, I just want you to know that that's not talking about being afraid of God, okay? That really means you need to see who God really is and you need to see who you are in light of that. Are you with me, right? And when we begin to see God for who he really is, we begin to see that he is much bigger than we ever imagined he was and at the same time we realize that we're much worse off than we ever thought we were. Okay? You know, the Bible says we're not just bad people. The Bible says we're dead people, right? We're dead and we need to be brought back to life. I mean, nobody, if you think about this over your life, nobody has ever treated you worse than you've treated you. Think about it, right? Nobody has broken more promises to you than yourself. The reality is when you stop and think about it is that you and I are the problem. But when we begin to see God for who he really is, it does two things. It crushes our ego, but it also crushes our insecurities, it crushes our ego because we're, we realize, hey, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, right? I'm not all who I thought I was. Like, I, I am messed up and I need a Savior, right? But it also crushes our insecurities because we realize that in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, and in God's eyes as he looks at us, we're kind of a big deal when we, when we step into the family of God. Why? Because the infinite creator of the universe loves you so much that he bought you at a price, and the price that he was willing to pay for you was the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So simultaneously what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, it squishes our egos, but it also squishes our insecurities. And not only do we know who we are, but because of whose we are, that means that, that, that we can see ourselves for who we really are. Are you with me? That's, that's what he says. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Now what he's going to do is he's going to give them a choice, okay? He, he says here, he says, going on, he says, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. If you have your Bibles open or your, your app on your phone open and you want to highlight or mark, I'd encourage you to mark that phrase, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. And honestly, we live in a culture and a society right now that doesn't really like to make choices, do we? We don't like to decide. We're like, hey, you know what? I like to have all my choices open. I like to have options. I don't want to really commit. I just want to kind of feel this thing out and see what happens. But I don't really want to decide. I just want to leave my, my options open. And Joshua was like, listen, this is my last speech. Today is the day that you get to choose. Today is the day. Now, when it comes to following Jesus, I want you guys to know this. When it comes to following Jesus, not making a decision is a decision, okay? So Joshua says, he goes on here, and he says, he says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then in a minute, in a minute he's going to give them the other choice, or he's going to say, you can serve the Lord, right? You can serve them, or you can serve the Lord. And so I want to say to you today, Elevate, I want to say to you today, today you have a decision to make, you and I both. We have a decision to make. You get to choose this day whom you are going to serve. You get to choose. Now, in that day, there was a whole bunch of idols in people's homes and lives, and they were literally like little carved images, statues, things like that, and they put them in their house. And while I know that you and I probably don't have little carved images that we bow down to, Every single one of us have the tendency 
to worship at the altar of something that is not God. Every single one of us. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, he said that you and I are idol-making factories. We're idol-making factories. And I don't know about you, but if we're honest, you know that there are these things in your life that compete to be the most important part of your life. And they're different for everybody. But we all have those. And the reality is that in the throne room of your heart, there is only one throne. And only one thing can sit on that throne. And an idol is anything, is, is anything temporary that we treat like it's infinite or ultimate. An idol is anything made by the creator that we treat as though it was the creator. And the crazy thing is sometimes those idols can be good things, not negative things in our lives. Sometimes in, the, in our lives, this is, this is mind-blowing, but they can actually be gifts from God. Idols in our life can be gifts from God. And we treat those gifts from God like they are actually God. I'm going to give some examples. Let's just, let's just start easy, okay? Children are a gift from God. But we can very easily make our children an idol in our life. And children make terrible idols. The most fundamental level, they, they make terrible idols because they were made to leave you and to start their own family, so they're not going to be around for too long, okay? Let's just be real. But, but you, know, you know, God promises the one true God, he's going to never leave us or forsake us. Or let's go with your, your spouse, your wife or your husband. You can make an idol out of your spouse. And your, your spouse, man, they are terrible, terrible idols. Don't ever make a God out of your spouse, okay? It's not going to go good for you. But sometimes we can take a good thing, we can make it a God thing, and then it becomes a bad thing. I'm going to say that again. We can take a good thing and make it a God thing, and then it becomes a bad thing. Because we've made it something it was never supposed to be. So what Joshua does here by naming all of these idols, he's like, you've got to pay attention in your life. Because there, there are these idols in your life. Some of them came from the other side of the river. Some of them came from Egypt. Some came from the Amorites. And though we, we don't worship those kinds of idols, there are plenty of us that worship at the altar of American idols. And I'm not talking about the TV show. There are things that we struggle with all the time that I would go, call good, old-fashioned, red-blooded American idols. One of the biggest ones, I think, is success. There are a whole bunch of us that worship at the altar of success. Now, if that's you, I believe it's because it's ingrained in us from little to be successful. From the earliest days, I'm talking like kindergarten. You know what we were trained to do? Be the best. Be the top of your class, right? I mean, like literally in like first and second grade, they're ranking the kids by their achievements. Why? So they can eventually get to the right high school. Why? So they can go to college and get a good degree. Why? So they can go to grad school and, and get another degree. Why? So you can go get a good job. Why? So you can make a whole bunch of money. Why? To buy a whole bunch of stuff to impress a whole bunch of people that you don't even know. Why? And it's usually about that people, at, at that point in people's lives, they start to go, uh-oh. It's usually about the point that you, you stop graduating from stuff in, in our culture, in our society, that's usually about middle age, right? Because we keep on going to the next level and trying to, you know, but when you finally hit that, that cruising altitude in life and there's no more graduations, a lot of people begin to scratch their head and think, is this really it? Is this it? I, I mean, so why am I working so hard to buy a bunch of stuff that most of it's going to end up at Goodwill eventually anyway? Like, why? Do You know, and I don't care how successful you are, but all the stuff you have eventually is going to end up in a garage sale. Unless you're really loaded, then it'll be an estate sale. But I hate to break it to you, it's the same thing, right? The same thing. And you know, do you know what a shame it is that you spend your entire life like a greyhound on the greyhound track? You ever seen these greyhound dogs on the greyhound tracks that race dogs? You know, what, you, know, you, you know what they do? You know what happens? Their entire life, those greyhounds spend chasing a fake rabbit on the greyhound track. It's not even a real rabbit. They're just running around chasing a fake rabbit, and they spend all of their days chasing after an illusion that's not even real. And we look at that and go, what a dumb dog, right? But every Monday, the alarm goes off, and we've been losing our minds chasing after something that's not even real. And when you finally catch it, those of us that might catch it, we take a bite out of it, and we realize it's fake, but it's too late at that point. You get to the top of the ladder, and you realize the ladder's up against the wrong wall. Now, 
I want you to know this. I'm not saying don't be successful, okay? I'm not saying that. Just define success the way God defines success. The way the Bible would define success is not accomplishment, it's obedience. So you leverage whatever success God has afforded you, and you leverage that success for significance and obedience to what God has called you to do in your life. What we do is we aim our sights in what he has called us to do instead of at what our world has sold us. Okay? We aim it at that instead of what the world has sold us. You see, success, again, is not about accomplishment or activity. It's about obedience and identity. It doesn't mean God expects everyone to quit their jobs and become a preacher. Please, don't do that, okay? Unless God is calling you, you can do that. But, but that's not what he's saying, okay? What, what that means is, like, next week, whatever God has called you to do, you go out and you work on purpose, and you work on significance, and you work on mission, and you be obedient to what God has called you to do in your life. And you aim for that, and you don't chase after what the world is trying to sell you. So choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to choose to serve success, or are you going to serve your Savior? Another one that's real close to that is a lot of us worship at the idol of stuff. The idol of stuff. I don't mean to offend anyone, but worshiping your stuff is just stupid, Right? Because Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, Timothy, command those who are, are rich not to be haughty or to put their hope in the instability of money. But you know what so many of us do? We put our hope in stuff, right? As if that stuff is going to do something for us that the last set of stuff couldn't do. And every way, every time that we do that, we're taking another lap around the cul-de-sac. But you see, cul-de-sacs don't go anywhere. Now, again, we all love stuff. Some of us love stuff we live in. Some of us love stuff we drive. Some of us love stuff we wear. Maybe you love stuff that floats. I don't know. I don't have a boat, so that's not me. I mean, we all love stuff, okay? And I, wa I want you to hear me. There is nothing inherently wrong with stuff. There is nothing inherently wrong with stuff. God is a good dad that loves you, and at times he, he, he lavishes blessings upon his children. But here's the, here's the catch. As long as we don't worship the stuff instead of the giver of the stuff. Are you hearing me? Are you with me? But the moment we begin to put our hope there, it is an idol that will always, always let you down. Have you ever bought a new car or a new-to-you car? Right? For a little while, man, you feel awesome, right? It's okay to admit. I mean, I can remember when I got my first truck, and, and uh, as a guy, man, I, first time I drove it, I thought, man, I feel, like, I feel like a man now. I feel like a better man now that I have a truck, you know? And you take the long way home, and, and you just want to drive around in it. And, and the crazy thing is, I, you know, you can't even see yourself in it, so I don't know why we care so much what it looks like, but we do. And, uh, you know, then how long does it take before it's just your truck, right? Right? It's got door dings in it and some old malts in the back and food from your kids on the floor, and, and you don't really care anymore because it's just your truck. doesn't matter, right? The problem is when that idea hits you and you're like, ah, you know what I need? I need a new truck. That's what I'm missing in my life. Welcome to another lap in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. It is an idol that can never, ever, ever, ever satisfy you, no matter what. Every time you've ever walked into a dressing room, you participated in this. You know how it goes, and I would say this is just true of the ladies, but men, we're guilty of this as well, okay? You walk into the dressing room, you got the clothes you're going to try on, and you look at yourself in the mirror at the clothes that you, you came into the store in, and you're like, how dare you terrible clothes do this to my look, right? And you take them off, and you just like disgustingly throw them on the floor and cast them aside, and then you put on some new clothes. And you're like, yeah, man, they know how to size jeans in this place. I knew I was that size, you know? And you get on a new shirt, and, and you're just like, man, you feel like a better person. And you're looking at yourself in the mirror, and, and in that moment, you feel like something inside of you happened. But here's the thing that we easily forget. The clothes that we just cast aside on the floor used to make us feel the exact same way. And in a season, by the way, guys, men here, did you know clothes had a season? Like, I know football season and, like, you know, the weather seasons change, but apparently clothes have seasons too. And in a season, you can go from it making you feel that way to casting it aside and you want something new, right? And, you know, it's, it's foolishness to think that some more new stuff is going to do for me what the last set of new stuff could not do for me. Every single one of us, when we worship at the altar of stuff, we're just shoveling money into something that won't work. It will not do it for you. And so what Jesus, he calls us to do is to step out of that cycle. Now, I'm not the fun police, okay? But, but when we see this thing correctly, 
and we stop worshiping the gifts, but we begin to see every gift as a gift from a good dad that loves his kids, it will stir within us a worship, not of that thing, but a worship of the giver of that thing. So choose this day. Are you going to follow after the, the God of stuff, or are you going to follow after your Savior? Now, the most common and complex idol we have is this. It's the idol of self. The idol of self. Now, here's how I know it's the most common. If you go into any bookstore today, anywhere in any town across America, the biggest section in there is going to be the self-help section. The self-help section, right? And so there's a lot of us that we worship at the idol of self-improvement. And here's what you think. You think, if only I could be a better version of me, then all my dreams will come true. And here's how you know it's a lie. Think back over the years to all the New Year's resolutions that you made. How'd that work out for you? I mean, think about it, right? <laughs> What'd you get, six weeks maybe? Maybe? I mean, honestly, has anybody ever let you down more than you? Which tells me one thing. You may need somebody bigger than you. You need, may need somebody better than you and smarter than you and somebody who's been around a lot longer than you to help you. And God forbid you ever worship at the idol of self-appearance because that's what we think, right? Man, if I could just get in shape, you know? If I could just get some abs, all would be well, right? First of all, if that's where you're going to put your hope, it's going to let you down, okay? Not figuratively, literally, as time goes on, things that were in place are going to fall. Um, you know, it's just the way it happens, right? So you put your hope in that, and what you look like, I'm telling you, it never, ever, ever ends well, okay? It's just the way it goes, because you got time and gravity against you, okay? It's just going to happen. Now, if you got money, you can put that off for a little while. You can nip it and tuck it and stretch it and do all sorts of stuff. I don't even know, right? But, but, man, have you ever seen somebody who's had too much plastic surgery? Like, it just, it just eventually you get down that road too far and you just look like you lost a fight. It's just, it's weird, right? And I'm not trying to offend anybody, but it's true. Like, it's not natural. But you put your hope in that, and I, I promise you, it's going to let you down. It's going to let you down. And the reality is this. Even if you nailed all of your objectives... If you walked in here six months from now, and man, you were just ripped. Like, you didn't have a six-pack, you had a ten-pack. And you learned a new language, and, and you, I mean, like, you got married, and, and you, whatever. You're the best version of you that you have ever been in your entire life. Guess what? There's still something missing in here. I mean, if you accomplish it all, but you do not know Jesus, every single one of those idols will let you down. They will not fully and finally satisfy. So some people worship at self-improvement, some at self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction, you know what that is? That's just this. Your appetite and your feelings are your God. You say, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want when I want with who I want. Right? I'm going I'm to do whatever I feel like. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. Let me tell you the problem with an appetite. When I say appetite, I'm not just talking about food. It could be anything in your life. You cannot trust your appetite. They will always mislead you. They will always trick you. Your appetite has a very short vocabulary, now and more. Now and more. That's what it does, right? That, that's all your appetite will tell you. And if you begin to go down that road, let me just tell you, it leads somewhere you do not want to go. And the thing is, we think, if I just feed this appetite a little bit, then I'm going to be fully and finally satisfied. You see, self-satisfaction in the beginning... In the beginning, it is satisfying, is it not? In the beginning, right? But you know what be ha begins to happen when you begin to feed an appetite? It doesn't quench your appetite. The appetite begins to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, think about the hour after Thanksgiving dinner when you're, like, laying around in yoga pants, and if you're not, you've got buttons flying everywhere, you know, and you're like, I'm not going to eat for a week. And then halfway through the football game, you're in the refrigerator again, right? Why? Think about it. Because when you feed the appetite, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's a little humorous, I know, but it's an illustration. And so if you go down the self-satisfaction path, it will lead somewhere you do not want to go. Do you know the enemy's mission statement is in the Bible? It says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the idol of self-satisfaction baits you down a road and then blames you for getting to the end of that road. You find any person that is coming out of an addiction of any kind, any kind of addiction, if you find somebody that's seriously coming out of that, they will say this. In the beginning, it was fun. In the beginning, it was great. You know, I, I was having a great time. You know, I mean, it was really fun. You know what the crazy thing about temptation is? 
It's tempting. Right? <laughs> temptation tempting, is it not? That's, that's why it's called temptation. It's true. The beginning of it is fun. People are like, you know, drink this, drink this. And you're like, oh, man, if I drink this, I'm going to get in shape, and I'm going to learn how to play volleyball and have a bunch of friends. And that's what the commercials say, right? And you start down a path, and, and a little while you're like, uh-oh, you know? And it could be a prescription medicine. It could be alcohol. It could be a pornography addiction. It could be any kind of addiction. They all started out that way. This is not a big deal, right? I'm the boss. I'm going to do what I want when I want with who I want. And then you start walking down that road, and at first you think, I got this. Oh, I got this. I'll keep it under control. And then one day you realize that it's got you. And the enemy wants you to worship at that idol of self-satisfaction so that he can lead you to a place of bondage. So the question is, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve our Savior or self-satisfaction? Now here's another self that we serve sometimes too, and it's also an idol. It's self-righteousness, sometimes called religion. And self-righteousness or religion in this context is really just self-improvement with a suit and a hymnal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a better version of me. I'm not going to just work out and learn a new language, but I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to get my list of do's and don'ts, and I'm going to do all those things and not do those things. I'm going to prove my worth to God by being a good Christian. And if you grew up like I grew up, I guarantee you've had an experience where someone said, this is what a good Christian does, and this is what a good Christian doesn't do. You get your do's and your don'ts list, right? And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And I want to say this. If you think that the Christian life is just about sin management, it's going to wear you out, and you don't really understand the gospel. It's like holding a beach ball underwater. You ever try to hold a beach ball underwater? You know, like a big beach ball? And you try to, like, uh, you're going to keep it down, right? You can do it for a little while. But depending on your arm strength, depending on how big the waves are that day and how much sunscreen you got in your hands, you're, eventually it's going to come up. And it never comes up easy. It never comes, it comes up with a fury and that thing shoots out of the water, right? And anybody that thinks Christianity is just sin management, let me just grab my sin and I'm just going to hold it down with my own power. I'm going to overcome my own sin by holding it down. It is exhausting, and when you do that, you're declaring that I'm righteous by myself. It is not about your activity, it's about Christ's activity. You see, the answer to that beach ball theology is Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, and it counted for you, that means he walks by with a pocket knife and sticks your beach ball, and all the air and power comes out of it. And then you just look kind of silly if you're trying to hold that thing underwater when Jesus is taking the power out of it, right? <laughs> So choose this day. Choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve yourself or are you going to serve the Savior? Some of us worship success, some stuff, some self. Here's one that's growing in popularity these days. It's some of us worship status. Status. Here's how I know. There's a bunch of you that have checked your Facebook status four times since I started preaching. Because it's that important what people think of you, Right? Is that matters so much what everybody else thinks of you. And here's what you do when you worship status. You take the keys to your contentment, and you just hand them out to a bunch of broken people. Right? And you say, hey, when all of you think rightly about me, then and only then will I be happy and content. And that is a miserable way to live your life. Anytime that you hand the keys to your contentment over to anybody other than our Lord and Savior and Creator Jesus... Let the pretend game and the performance trap begin. And the problem is when we compare ourselves to what everybody else, else's social media world looks like, it's like comparing your B-roll to their highlight reel. Right? You're comparing what you know about you to stuff you have no idea about them. And can I just say this? Their Instagram account is not their real life. You realize this, right? You are comparing yourself to stuff that's not even real. Like you get online, you look at somebody's family that's going to the beach or something, you're like, oh, man. I wish my family was like that. You know, they look perfect, and they're so happy. And, and let's just be honest. Have you ever seen a happy mom at the beach? No. I, I, don't, I don't think it exists, right? Because you're, you're yelling, hey, you're out there too deep. Quit hitting your brother. Don't put sand there. Hey, you better get over here and help me raise these people, right? That's, that's reality, right? And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. They're never just chilling out. It's work, right? 
And then right before you go out there, everybody comes, come together, come together. All right, quit that. Stand up straight. Smile. All right, one, two, three, click. And it looks perfect. And they post it on Instagram, and everybody sees that. I'm thinking about this, the invention of the selfie. What is up with that? Like, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm done. I'm not going there. But just think about that for a minute. The reality is, if you're honest, all of us struggle in some sense with some of these idols that creep into our lives. And they'll, they'll be different for everybody. But all of us struggle with this at some level. And so we have to identify what the idols are in our own lives that we tend to worship. Timothy Keller wrote this incredible book called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he asked these four diagnostic questions that will help to identify what the idol behind the idol is. And here they are. That's what he says. He says, what is my greatest nightmare? What do you worry about the most, right? What do you worry about the most? The second one is how do I comfort myself? When something bad goes wrong in your life, do you honestly run to the loving arms of your heavenly father? Or do you run to that website? Or to a relationship with somebody that's not your spouse? Or to a prescription bottle that doesn't have your name on it? How do you comfort yourself? Where does pride begin to creep into your life? I mean, what are you proud of? Now, this one, man, this can be a really, really good thing. This can be a really good thing that becomes an idol in your life. You know what an idol in my life can be very quickly? You. All of you. What you think about me can matter way too much at times. And I consistently have to lay that one down at the foot of the cross and just say, Jesus, make me the mailman. I didn't write it. I just deliver it, right? And if they don't like it and they, they send me an angry email, I'm going to forward it on to you, right? I have to consistently do that. Or it could be your family or your work or some great success. So, so what do you worry about, okay? How do you comfort yourself? Where is pride creeping in? And last of all, what do you expect out of life? Now, I, I know none of you would say it this way, but what do you feel like God owes you? What does God owe you in your mind and your heart? Jesus preaches a sermon on this in the same topic in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this, and it's why I keep asking, is he before all things in your life? Or are you putting some other things before him who should be before all things? Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And I believe, from, based on context, from Matthew chapter 16, the rock that he's talking about here is surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then says, upon this rock, that declaration that that is who you are, that public declaration, upon that rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Jesus is saying here, you've got two options. Option one, you can build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. Verse 26 gives us option two. It says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now here's what's crazy. Before the storm comes, both of these houses look great. You can't really tell the difference. Here's something else that's true. Whether you build your house on Jesus or not, the storms will come. The storms will come. If you ever hear someone preaching that if you just believe in Jesus, everything gets better, nothing bad will ever happen to you, I want you to get your kids and leave and never go back to that church. Because the reality of the gospel is that the storms come on all of us. They do. They do. But for those of us that built our lives on the rock of Jesus, what this is saying is we can withstand the storm. We can withstand the storm. And the way the whole sermon is summed up in, in verse 28 is this. He says these words. He says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know why he had authority? Because he's the creator of life. And as such, he may know how to live it. And what he's saying is the engine of the human condition the fuel for that engine is Jesus himself. And if you put anything else into the, the fuel tank, it might get you by for a little while, but eventually you're going to start to sputter and it's going to start to rot from the inside out, not the outside in. Now here's the reality of an idol. Our idols cannot be tamed. They can only be toppled. And you know, a lot of times what we try to do as Christians is we try to tame our idols and we think, I got this and you don't got this. You don't have it. 
It's there to kill, steal, and destroy you. Have you ever seen these, these news events where, like, somebody tries to tame a wild animal and ends up, like, eating their face off? You know what I'm talking Like, there's, like, a bunch of them, like, different wild animals, and they're like, oh, I'm going to make it my pet, and it's going to live with me, and it ends up killing the owner. And, and you know, I, I saw one recently, it was, it's not funny, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it, it kind of is, because it's so stupid, why, you know, like, you, you think you'd learn, right? There's so many of these, it's like, and it's like, on the 4 o'clock news, a jaguar eats a woman's face off, and, and then they're interviewing the neighbor, and the neighbor's like, I'm so surprised, they used to cuddle all the time, and I'm like, it's a jaguar! It's a jaguar, like, that's what they do! It's a predator, it's, it's a missile with, with teeth and claws, like, what did you think was going to happen, Right? That's what they're built to do. And I was thinking about, I'm like, sin is the same way. You cannot tame that kind of idol. Eventually, that will eat your face off. It'll turn on you because that's what it was created to do. A jaguar is an apex predator. It's going to pounce and kill stuff. You cannot tame it. You can only topple it. The way the early American Puritans would say this is this. They would say that the only way to dislodge something from your heart that you see is beautiful it's to replace it with something that is infinitely more beautiful. There's an old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, the point in this choose this day whom you will serve, it's not about sin management. It's about falling more and more in love with Jesus. If you get your eyes on him, and Jesus, man, he is brighter than the sun. And compared to Jesus, everything else this world has to offer is nothing. And this is Joshua's sermon, man. He says, choose this day who you will serve. And if you're going to serve those other gods, then go for it. But he goes on to say in verse 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, for me and my house. He says, we're not going to do house the way the rest of this world does house. He says, I'm the head of my house. And I'm not going to dress myself as a king. I'm going to dress myself as a servant. I'm going to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. And I'm not going to lord fear and domina domination over my children, but I'm going to train them up in the way that they should go. And I'm going to stand at the front door of my house and say, not in my house. The filth of this world will not come into my house through those TV screens. Absolutely not. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Because we see what this world has to offer. And frankly, Jesus is just better. He's just better. And the people, this is, this is crazy, they're like, okay, Joshua, great sermon. You're right, you're right, we'll pick Jesus, right? This is what they say in verse 16. They say, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we, will also, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And you think, oh man, like this is a happy ending. It's coming together. And then you read Joshua's answer, and it's going to throw you off at first. Because Joshua answers, and he's like, he says to the people, he's like, you're not able to serve the Lord, because he's a holy God. And you're like, what? Like, in other words, Joshua's like, it doesn't work that way. And the people, man, they're like, what are you talking about? Like, you just did this entire sermon, Joshua. On choose this day whom you're going to serve, and you made a compelling argument as to why we should not serve the idols of the world. So we pick Jesus. And here's what Joshua is saying. He's saying if you're just going to try harder, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Let's be honest. How many of you have done the try harder method? God's good, you're bad, try harder, see you next week. Doesn't work, does it? Doesn't work. And then what begins to happen is your entire life is about remorse and resolution. And, and what that means is that we are trying to please God by our own activity. And that will never, ever, ever work. It is not about our activity. It is about our identity in Jesus Christ. And our identity in Christ is found in the activity of Jesus on the cross, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we would become his righteousness. And that, that's why Joshua here, he's saying, hey, listen, it's not try harder. And then you get to verse 23, and this is my favorite part of the whole thing. He says this. He says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So now we're talking. He, Joshua's saying, look, you can't try hard. It's not going to work. He said, this is a heart issue. It's about your heart. This is about what you do with your heart. That you surrender your heart 
to the lordship of Jesus Christ. All the other stuff will come after. But it's got to be there. Not that you just work on your external activity. You know, Christianity is not an outside-in thing. It's an inside-out thing. And I think for a lot of years, Christianity has got that backwards. It has to start here. Or all that external is for naught. It has to be from here. And Joshua says it's a heart issue. Incline your heart to the Lord. Jesus will say in John 15, draw near to me. He says, abide in me, stay close to me. This is about a heart relationship between you and God. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. And if you get to that place where you say, yeah, I want to serve God, but how do I do that? Here's how. You stop trying and you just surrender to him. Surrender. It's not about activity. It's not about trying harder. It's about quit trying and allow him what he did on the cross to count for you. The, 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 the change of activity will come. The behavior will change. But you've got to start by surrendering and allowing what he did for you to count for you. Joshua 24, verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. This is so important. You see, God is a covenantal God. We've talked about this before. He wants to make a covenant. And here's what a covenant is. A covenant is not, if you do your part, I'll do my part. That's not what it is. That's a contract, okay? That is works-based righteousness. That's a contract. Hey, God, if I do my part, will you love me? If I do X, Y, and Z, are we good? And God's like, look, I'm not the phone company. I'm not into contracts. Praise God. I'm into covenants. And a covenant is, no matter what, here is what I promise I will do. And so you, do you know what God did? God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus became what the Bible says, the, the propitiation for our sin. That word propitiation, it means a payment that satisfies fully. A payment that satisfies fully, which means that when you are in Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered your life to him, that God could never be dissatisfied in you if you are truly surrendered your, your life to Jesus because He's made the payment for you that fully satisfies. It's about a covenant. It's about a heart covenant. So here's the point, and it's a question that today I want you to answer. I'm going to invite the musicians to, to come on up because we're about to wrap this thing up. But I want to ask this. Will you build your life on the rock of surrender to Jesus or on the sands, the shifting sands of self? The way Joshua said it is, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to continue to chase after the things of this world and what it has to offer? Or are you ready to fully surrender all of you to the one who sent his son on a rescue mission for you? C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Christian authors, he says it this way in Mere Christianity. In this, in this passage, he's speaking on behalf of God. He says this. He says, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your talent and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. All of you. I've not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here or prune a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit. All of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, and all of your dreams. Turn them all over to me and give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in exchange, and I will give you myself. My will shall become your will, and my heart shall become your heart. So whether you've been in church every single week of your entire life, or whether this is your, your first time, one of the most beautiful graces of God is that every single one of us are invited. We are invited to choose this day whom we will serve. And the invitation is open to all. Are you going to continue to serve the gods of this world, even those good things that become gods and idols? Or could today be the day where you say, I give up. I'm just going to let it all go. I'm going to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. From this day forward, I want to build my house on the rock that is Jesus. Because when he died on the cross, I believe that it counted for me. As we close today, they're going to be singing a song, so I'm going to invite all the musicians to come up, and I'm going to, I'm going to stay up here. And what I want to do is, as we're singing this song about building my life uh, on the rock of Jesus, if you want to say today that, that you 
are deciding today, and I'm going to be up here. I'm, gonna, I, I'm, I'm saying the same thing. I'm, I'm up here saying the same thing. But if you today want to make that stand and just say, today I choose Jesus. Whatever the idol is in my life that I'm struggling with, whatever's going on in my life, maybe nobody even knows about it. Whatever that thing is that is fighting to become more preeminent in my life than Jesus, I want to let it go. I want to let it go. So during this song, if that's you, I just want to invite you to just kind of come forward. I know we're tight, but just come on, squeeze forward. And then when they're done singing, we're going to say a prayer together. Father, we pray in a very powerful way right here, right now. I pray for each and every person that has made that stand. That you will come in and fill them with your Holy Spirit. And that you will empower them. And that you will give them the strength that they need. Because we know the storms will still come. We know those storms are coming. But if we, if we build on anything other than you, we cannot stand. Father, we know, we know there is a celebration going on in heaven right now for this, the, the decisions and hearts that have been made to put you first and to, to serve you and to follow you. And we have chosen this day. And it's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. We love you so much. Words can't express. Be with us now as we leave this place. Help us to go forth from here full of joy and peace, knowing that in you, in you, we are righteous, we are covered, and we are dearly loved sons and daughters of God Most High. Help us now, Lord, as we leave this place to walk and talk and live our lives in that way. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.